Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato, where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right, here we go. I've been looking forward to this one. We got uh, Carl on the show here. I know he's a really good friend of yours, and I've been really excited to meet him. And uh, we're still in the corona quarantine, so, you know, there's uh, <laughs> some stuff with that going on, but. You know, men are still out there. We're still talking. We're we're working on our empathy skills because there's uh, some new levels to our lives now. But just again, wanted to check in with you, Albert. See how you're doing. You know, you're still still in upstate, still hanging yeah, up been, there. Yesterday was uh, was four weeks. Yeah, uh, at the house, and uh, we just came up one Friday thinking we were just going to enjoy the weekend, and then the shit hit the fan, and then suddenly it's a month later. And uh, I mean, it's really just been an extraordinary an extraordinary experience and you know none of us have any preparation for it and we don't know what's coming down the road but i'm feeling a little bit of a sense of adjusting a little bit to the new normal uh sort of feeling a little bit like you, you saw like the deer in the headlights uh look that people had the, the first couple of weeks was just like what the hell does this really mean now it's like oh it's just a really nasty series of worries and inconveniences all of it's manageable very little of it's fun and you know in general our life is a battle between what's fun and what's necessary to deal with and i think that's really probably what's freaking people out the most um that's why i have such sympathy for uh for families especially young kids because i think you know you're an adult you've been around the block a couple of times you know it's just a bit of a you know this is this is something you've grown to expect in life that there's some ups and downs and this is a particularly really hard period but for kids you know they just want to go to school they want to play with their friends they want to hang out so i really my heart goes out to these kids uh whose lives are upended and this is going to be something to deal for them to deal with um so anyway that's that's where my head's been uh looking and talking to my friends seeing the ones who are you know schooling their kids at home you know, it's it's one thing to say, oh, I'll just work from home. And suppose you're all home and you have three kids and you're in a Manhattan apartment. Figure out those logistics. So there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of listening and learning about people's lives in ways that I actually did not know before. I know a lot more. Certainly, my employees, I did not know a lot of of their their issues and their, you know, what they were facing. Now we're we're sharing more of that because we really need to know. We need to to be able to to give advice and offer support. So it's been, it's been an adventure and not, not always a fun one, I got to say, but uh, you know, like I said, I, I do think that we're, we are adjusting a bit and getting used to new, the new normal. Definitely. And uh, yeah, the adjusting to it is, uh, you know, something that the adaptation is, is what makes humanity so, so powerful. And um, you know, what you're talking about, you know, homeschooling, being in small apartments, you know, I'm in an apartment and my buddy, um, he, you know, we were just uh, FaceTiming, watching uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, you know, to a TV show, show like, a, you know, sitcom Hilarious. about cops. And uh, one of the, it, the two episodes that we watched together were just like classic. And I kind of have to bring them up. One was uh, an eight-day stakeout situation where the two best friends go into it. And by like, you know, day, day three, day four, day five, they just start going crazy and they're at each other's throats and everything like that. And, you know, at the end of the episode, they, they make up, they, they work together, they, they catch the bad guy and everything's good. And the next one is, um, 
like they kind of had like a team, you know, outing where like everyone but the boss came. But then like the boss showed up and everyone was kind of like, uh, what's up? <laughs> but they still kind of found a way to to make it fun and work as a team. So those are kind of some of the things the the themes that I want to bring into, but I'm sure we have a lot of other stuff to talk about. Um, and you wanted Carl, I mean, I know he's been a big fan since um the start of the show. So Albert, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to invite him on today? Well, you know, I think a big a big premise of um the show and uh, my own, certainly my own life experience and thinking is that we often, uh, we are put into sort of positions where we're sort of forced to choose, you know, oh, you're going to be the sensitive one. You're going to be the uh, the caring one. Oh, you're going to be the selfish one. You're going to, you know, people get put pigeonholed into ideas of who, what their personality is. And I think a big dividing line between between men is the thoughtful man, and the regular guy, you know, the blue collar dude, sort of the, the you know, and I, I've been always very sensitive to this, to this whole issue, because I'm, I am from a regular family. I'm not from terribly educated or cultured family. And I just happen to, you know, go off to school and, and get, you know, really seriously into books and music and, and the arts and blah, blah, blah. And uh, anyway, there's, it's always just bothered me that, that, there is, there's this tendency to, to categorize people. So when I meet someone who seems so different from me on the outside, and then suddenly we're connecting in a deep way, it just gives me like incredible sense of, of uh, hope that, that um, you know, we can create bonds with people that will really strengthen our lives individually, but also our society, that we can build bridges that we didn't think we we're going to build. So, you know, you and I'm, you know, decided to do this show. And I thought, oh, a couple of people, a couple of people might like it, but the, uh, huge numbers of guys follow, you know, following denim and rugged style and all this stuff. No way are a lot of these guys going to be into this at all. And so little by little, we got a couple of folks reaching out to us and I, it was just so incredible. Like, wow, I would just look at the pictures and go like, Carl Morowski's into our podcast. Like, that dude, like he's talking to me, he's DMing me, we're sharing stories. Oh my God, I'm gonna meet him in Connecticut when I go visit my buddy Tucker. Holy shit, he's really nice. I met his wife, he's, the, he's really sweet. So there's, there was just this immediate sort of sense like, oh wow, Carl's, Carl's like, you know, he's got a YouTube channel and he's talking about power tools and rugged wear and he looks about as regular as it gets and we are completely able to connect and, and you know, I, I just absolutely love that. And I want to know when I meet people like Carl, why are they special? What makes them tick? And where do they get that, that ability to just be themselves and communicate? So that's, that's why I really wanted to get Carl on the show. Great. Well, I'll give him the official intro and then we'll get him on. So Carl was born and raised in Connecticut in a single parent household. He found his way through various jobs like becoming a mechanic, a tow truck driver, an electrician, all while going to college at night. On his honeymoon in Mexico, Carl decided that he was going to start a YouTube channel, and it was one of the best decisions of his life. In the next few years, he plans to make YouTube a full-time job while balancing a young family and an established career in construction. Carl also defeated uh, the lava monster using nothing but a magical fish hook, but that's a story for another time. All right, Carl. Thanks so much for coming on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
Yeah, how you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I I gotta ask about the the magical fish show because that's something I definitely don't know. About. <laughs> my first guest is Minecraft, but I don't know. <laughs> no, you know, I got two young kids, and they both are really into Disney movies. So uh, okay, you know, <laughs> we watch Moana on a semi daily basis, and that's a uh, that's that's the big story behind that. <laughs> okay, all right, right on. Well, I'm sure once uh, my son gets older, you said he like she was around like four or something like that. Yeah, like, yeah. Yep. So mine's about one. Um, we'll we'll get to there. So yeah, I was just like, okay, all right. <laughs> I'm saying this. <laughs> Carl, Carl, if you don't mind, I want to start this back in Mexico. You're on your honeymoon and you're thinking about YouTube. Yeah, what's going <laughs> totally. on? Totally. <laughs> I can remember. Yeah, check. Uh, this is the thing that I remember exactly where I was and exactly when I when I had this like. Oh, I gotta do something. I was so we we spent ten days down there. We had a nice long honeymoon where we were just chilling out, you know. And it was it was it was what you do, you know. So um, they had these little cabana things set up so you could go and sort of claim one. So I would find one and bring a book with me and just uh, something I never get to do, which is just relax and not worry about what the the time is, you know. Except for like, oh, this is when we're eating. So I, I grabbed uh, the four hour work week and I reread that one which I had, I had read, uh, you know, probably twice before. So I'm sitting out there and I'm just kind of rereading it, going through and like highlighting some things. And then I'm like, man, you know, I, I hate the feeling that I'm so bummed about leaving this. And sometimes I think if you're on vacation, it really like puts the rest of your life into perspective. It's supposed to be relaxing and fun and all that stuff. But how, how, devastated you feel about going back to your day job is very telling and I was like all right well how can I get out of feeling this this horribly about going back to work because I I was like oh god I, I just don't know what to do what were you doing at that point I had uh I was still working in the field as an electrician and you, you know blue collar work is a is a really weird thing man it's just uh you know it's hard to explain. It's very hard to explain unless you're in it. But the the overall feeling is is typically not a good one. You have to be you have to be acclimated to it. Otherwise, you're gonna um, you're not gonna be able to cope. You know, they speak their own language, and I think it's I think it's by design. You know, so that that way they can really the people who are out on the job site can tell an outsider like very easily. So there's a certain there's a dialect you use. Like the way I'm speaking to you now is not the same way that I would probably go and talk to guys in a construction site. There's a certain tone. There's kind of a, uh, there's just a way you have to approach it. And it's a very walls up, um, you know, traditionally masculine way of being, which is, is not, it's not always good. And sometimes it can be very draining, you know, especially if you had a real problem. So if I had like a real problem with something at home or whatever, I couldn't talk to the guys at my job about that. No way. Absolutely not. You don't talk about those kind of things. So I was, I was thinking when I'm laying in that cabana, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta do something now. Since then I transitioned out of the field into management. So it's been different, still the same, the same kind of thing. Um, but that's when I was like, well, what can I start and just slowly build? Because I have no problem putting the time and effort in and waiting. Um, I know it takes, you know, like 10 years to build something truly great, but you know, you got to get started early. It's like investing. So I thought maybe, maybe I could do a, a YouTube thing. That's the up and coming thing. All the kids are doing it now. So uh, when I got home, I, that's what I started doing, but that was the moment I remember being there and I could probably bring you back to uh, 
the Yucatan Peninsula and show you the exact cabana I was laying in when I thought of this. How, and that was how long are we talking? Uh, that was about four years ago. It was just four years ago. Yeah, yeah. Wow, and you've built quite a little YouTube empire in four years. <laughs> I mean, well, you have like a big, a big following. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, thanks. In our space, it's pretty good. I mean, if I was going to do other things like uh, that, that net more views, I could probably do better. But it, no, it's going <laughs> Dude, pretty it's well. It's called porn. Just kidding. <laughs> um, sorry. By the way, I was relating a little bit to that blue collar thing. I am not a blue collar dude, although I could play one on TV. But it's like when I go back to the Bronx and suddenly I'm like, Hey, yeah, bro. When are we gonna have the canole? And I'm like, what just, what the, what? I go into this Bronx serious, like, hey, I'm from the Bronx. I'm talking to my cousins. Yeah. And my friends are just like, what the heck is going on? So, anyway, um, first of all, the cabana, that's my scene. Put me on a beach in a cabana, that's happiness for me. So, that, that was the best use of a vacation for you to have this incredible breakthrough. Why uh, specifically? You know, did you just like just always love uh, rugged wear and, and, and boots and denim and, and stuff? I mean, what made you just immediately say, OK, I'm going to do a YouTube on that? It didn't start out that way. Uh, it was originally going to be about uh, dressing well more formally. And it was weird because, again, you know, here I am. I'm a blue blue collar guy. I don't dress with a, I don't wear a tie, but I always enjoyed it. And I remember I, I had gotten my first bespoke suit probably 10 years prior and I, I remember the transformative feeling of putting that on and feeling like a million bucks and the way it affects everything outside of you. So the, when you put on something and you feel great, and that's the way I felt with the suit, when you, when you, when you kind of like, um, when you go into normal life, you can really feel the difference. It makes you more, you're, you're more confident, you're more capable, and it, it, there's no way that can't translate to a great life. So I'm thinking, all right, well, how can I explain to people that this might be the, 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 the spark that sets a whole line of things in motion for you, getting you know, your date, getting your career on, on track, whatever it is, how can, I, how can I explain that to people? And that was the beginning of the YouTube thing, but it didn't, trans, it didn't transition to more of the rugged kind of stuff until maybe a year ago. That's when I started leaning into that a little bit more. Oh, wow. Um, so just very briefly, just to give us a little bit of ba background growing up, was, were you from a blue collar family? Was that just surrounding you with your dad, your brothers, that kind of thing? Yeah. I, you and I have never actually discussed that part. <laughs> no, we usually don't go down the resume with a friend. You're just, you know, you're living, living yeah. in the moment. Yeah. No, my father owned a print shop. Uh, my mother worked uh, as a hairdresser. And so it was... Yeah, it was in the, it was in the family in, in a way, you know. But they both. What's odd is that my father owned a print shop, my mother owned her own hair salon. I think that 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 entrepreneurial spirit has always been there. My sister owns her own uh, massage studio. Everybody kind of wants to strike out on their own, and it's something that I don't think. Uh, I'm not sure that you can. I don't think you can can divorce from that entirely. I think it's ingrained a little bit. But just uh, just the sister, no other siblings. Nope, just my sister. Yeah, younger sister. And did you have a, a ton of like close friends? Were you like a social dude growing up? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I, I probably would be like the definition of introverted, you know, but an odd thing happened. And I, I don't think I've ever really discussed this with anybody, but I started thinking about this the other day. Like I would make a friend and then they would somehow move away. And then I'd make a friend and then they would somehow move away. So like my best friend from third grade to right before freshman year 
his father got another job. He worked for in broadcasting. So he worked for NBC, but then he got transferred to like Wisconsin. So he left. Then I was really good friends with uh, uh, another guy. He ended up moving to Canada. And it was like all these people, they would either die or move away. So for a little while, I kind of felt like a little cursed. I'm like, geez, you know, when's the other shoe going to drop? And I didn't really think about that until the other day. I was like, man, I can't think of anybody I've been friends with for a long time who hasn't moved away. And they all seem to like go. It's it's a weird situation. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure it's just coincidence. I don't think that it's like <laughs> if you were on a ca- if you were on a couch and and we were actual shrinks, we'd be like, what do you think it means, Carl? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the I mean, employment I, opportunities in Connecticut aren't great. I, That's what I think it means. I had I had um, a couple of you know losses when I was when I was a kid and. Um, I, you know, could relate to that, but I, I honestly, I, I didn't, ha- when I meet people today and they say, Oh, I'm still friends with my elementary school friend. I think, you know, that's just so extraordinary. Adam, do you have like any like buddies from, from forever or not, not really? Yeah, actually, yeah, that's you know, cool. um, you met Ben, um, when we met in mm-hmm. uh, New York city. And I mean, like since birth, we've been friends. Um, Matt has been my friend for many years and, um, I also have a group of guys from that we all kind of whenever we went to junior high all met up and became friends and we still talk and communicate we've got a group chat and everything so for me like it's kind of you know I had the the sports team guys that you know some of them were from elementary school that played up until the the end of high school and then I also had like my really good kind of like scene friends that we went to shows together and we hung out every Friday night like it wasn't even a question of of what we were like, you know, going to do, it's like, no, we were all going to hang out probably either at a show or we're going to go to a movie and that's what we were doing. So for us, like, you know, I really did have like a really tight knit, like close group of friends. Um, but then, you know, after college, we kind of all separated, separated a little bit, but yeah, I could definitely say like, I have some people in my life that just know me from, you know, probably before puberty to, <laughs> to who I am now. So it's, it's very different. Yeah. It was a real break for me when I went to, to, to college, I went to California to uh, school and at Stanford and go leaving New York at a kind of a traumatic time. My family, my parents were g- splitting up. I kind of left high school and everything behind. And I realized now what, just how much a lot of my behavior today is almost trying to capture and reconnect, even though I'm not like searching to reconnect with old friends, there is sort of a sense of trying, you know, it's really funny talking to you guys. I'm, I'm realizing it's trying to create an intimacy in the present that has the sort of depth of the intimacy that comes from time. Because the one thing we can't actually control in a friendship, we can control making ourselves available, all kinds of things. We cannot control the amount of time. You know, we can't go back and rewind and say, oh, I wish I knew Adam in eighth grade. I cannot know Adam in eighth grade. And I think that's really a driver in my personality. Like I'm going to try to create a bond with someone that makes it feel like we might, we could have been in, in, you know, in, in middle school together. So, so you said Carl, that you were introverted. You, you actually considered yourself introverted, which is hilarious because your, your personality is so ebullient and you have such incredible energy. Uh, was that like an issue like in any way? Like were you actually in high school thinking, damn, like, I kind of am alone here or was, was it there a negative aspect to being an introvert or was it just, Hey, I did my own thing. No, there totally was, but I'll tell you, you know, 
again, I remember around the time when I was like, this clearly isn't working for me. Being this way, even though it feels right, like I, I, I hate going to, to weddings and big gatherings and stuff like that. I usually feel like really, really awkward. And I just want to like escape. Like I'm looking for like a window or something to jump out. Like if there's an opportunity for me to leave, I'm going to leave. And so my wife's the exact opposite. She's social butterfly. So you could put it on for a little while, but I find it like very, very draining. But what I was speaking about before was I remember specifically when I was about 20 and I was like, this this way of being, which is, which was spawned from, you know, going to these hardcore shows and stuff like that, which was, you know, a very like pretty violent place. So everybody was sort of done up like you were going to battle, you know what I mean? So I had the shaved head, now I shave it because, you know, there's nothing left up there anyway, but I had the shaved head back in the day. I was trying to be as intimidating as possible. That's like the world that I was in because that's where we went, right? And that's the hardcore music you, music scene. Hardcore music, yeah, yeah. That It was big in Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts. There was always somewhere to go. So same thing like Adam, my friends and I, would go to these shows every weekend or even during the week, you know, they would kind of, they would just spring up and somebody would be like, Hey, do you want to go see blah, 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 bland band here? Everybody would go, everybody would hop in somebody's car and you'd, you'd go down there. But I remember specifically being like, this is not getting me a date. This is not making me happy. This is, this whole thing is not the way that I want my life to be. Like I, I'm freaking miserable, you know? So I remember being like, all right, well, you know what? Then nobody's going to change this thing except for me. Like I'm in charge of this ship. So it's not that I started distancing myself from my friends. I was still their friends, but I started changing things up. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to join a gym. I'm going to like grow my hair out and look like a normal human being. I'm not going to like try to scare everybody that I meet. I'm going to just try to be who I want, who I kind of picture the future myself being. I always kind of thought my life would be something between like, Baywatch and a Motley Crue video, but it was more like, <laughs> it was more like, it was a lot more dystopian and lonely. And that, that was not, it, a lot of that was because of these like preconceived notions that I had, which were totally wrong. You know, that like parties were not necessarily a, uh, a drug den type of thing. You know, like I, I always avoided parties with people at, at, in high school. Cause I was like, you know, I was a straight edge at the time. So I'm like, I'm not into drinking, not into doing drugs, not into this. So if you do, I don't want anything to do with you. It was a very like black and white way of living. And that sucked because then you really narrow down the people that you can actually hang out with. And just because you share those values doesn't mean that you have anything else in common. So now you take a big group of people and you narrow it way, way down. And that's what you're left with. People who probably have the same hangups as you do. And then it becomes this, this, this negative feedback loop. And so I was like, something's got to stop that. And it, I remember that, that, that time very specifically where like, well, nobody else is going to do it. So I've got to do it for myself. Since then, uh, it's, it's, that, that, that mindset has helped quite a bit. Yeah, totally. I feel you on that, especially with like the, the pigeonholing on your kind of like group and your like crew. Um, Cause I remember at these shows, like, yeah, there was, there was an intimidation factor where it's like, you know, you're whenever like your car full of like, you know, six or eight people showed up, you know, people were hanging out in the trunk, you know, <laughs> trying to go to these shows <laughs> and you showed up and you're like, oh yeah, we're here. And we're, you know, we're, we're taking our little part of this show and like, you know, oh, we're going to mosh to this or like dance to this song our way. And um, yeah, like it was just like, it was 
definitely toxic. It was definitely intimidating. And, you know, everyone was trying to like battle for their kind of like, you know, dominance of like, you know, who's the hardest, who's the craziest, who's the most insane, like who can get drunk or highest the most and still kind of function. So, um, you know, before we're kind of joking about the, the lion walk, you know, it's like right before, you know, like the two-step part and then, you know, you're kind of just like puffing out your chest. And then when the breakdown happens, you know, everyone goes crazy. And it's just like, man, like that was just a, a wild time in a wild environment. And, you know, we're all black tees, blue jeans, black shoes, you know, like I'm, I'm sure that's exactly <laughs> yeah. what you were wearing. Um, that was like our, like, you know, the uniform. <laughs> yeah, the uniform. Exactly. <laughs> And yeah, it took, it took some time, you know, post like, you know, uh, that was like high school for me when I went to college. And then I was like, I can go to a Broadway show or like, you know, I can see theater or I could go to like a jazz show. And, um, one of the first classes I took in high school was the history of jazz. And part of it was go to a jazz show. And so I went to Cambridge and I, I went to a show and I was like, whoa, there's no, like everyone's just chilling, having a good time. Like, what's this all about? So I, I definitely feel the the change in the mindset between like the intimidation factor and just that, oh, like, you know, it's like, why did we have to kind of show those feelings instead of enjoying the music? So mm -hmm. I just want to get your take on sort of the intimidation factor, the, you know, huge macho masculinity versus like, you know, where that came through now and how the maybe the change of music, I don't know if you still listen to as much as, as it now, or like, you know, with the musical changes, you know, that kind of shifted your kind of preferences and the way you kind of felt and hung out with uh, different like music groups and social scenes. Mm, yeah. I think there's, there's probably like, like anything it's multifaceted, but yeah. there's definitely, there's definitely been a shift in what I listen to. I like, uh, I really like kind of goofy progressive rock and stuff like that so primus and uh you know devin towns and stuff where it's like it's nerds but it's genius you know mm -hmm. and it's still it, it still has the impressive um heaviness to it that i like and all that stuff but there's a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of not taking ourselves too seriously type of thing which i i enjoy plus when you listen back to that music of the time it was it was honest to what it was at the moment but you can tell how much it's really covering up you know we were we were the outcasts. We were, it was mostly men. There was a, like an odd girl in there, but, but I don't know about you. It was 99% frustrated, angry guys. Totally. And so when you're that age, you know, we were all the same age group. We were all really mad because we probably weren't the, you didn't see the quarterback hanging out there. It was all of us who, who didn't seem to have a place. So we were angry at the world. And plus we were men with a ton of testosterone flowing through us and nowhere to put it. So, you know, that's why I was playing the drums. It was a way to get rid of that anger, you know, and the gym was the same thing. And sometimes, you know, that can be a good thing, especially when you're trying to push through something. But yeah, I think it was in a way it was a, a negative breeding ground. Not many people will tell you that a lot of good things came from that, you know, that really you had some friends but at the same time, if you didn't subscribe to their beliefs and their thoughts and all that stuff, remember the, the, the straight edge kids, the guys who didn't do drugs or anything like that would not talk or associate with anybody who wasn't in that group. And I remember being like, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who was really into it. And he was uh, said, so being straight edge means that you're never going to try any sort of 
alcohol, drug, anything like that. And he said, yeah, it's like a lifetime commitment. I said, well, that seems a little limiting. Like what if, you know, you want to enjoy something not because of the effect it gives you, but, you know, because of a social kind of thing or whatever. And that was like, that was the wrong thing to say because it's like, well, then clearly you're not one of us. You know, that's the whole thing is this commitment. And again, it's a very black and white militant way of being, which is terrible, absolutely terrible. And it does not, it doesn't, I don't remember many positive things coming from that at all. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> can definitely feel that. I mean, back in like the VFW where all those shows were, you know, fights inside, fights outside, you know, people drinking in cars, you know, and, and just everything. And it was just kind of like this wild time, but that's what we kind of had as, you know, those groups. And just like you said, you know, the, the quarterback isn't going to the show, you know, the, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the actual, you know, people in playing in successful bands, like, you know, aren't there, but like, you know, the, the hardcore people, the frustrated people, who didn't really get to express themselves in any other way were there. And that was their, their kind of outlet. So, I mean, I'm glad that, that it happened. You know, I'm glad I played guitar and screamed into a microphone for a couple of years and <laughs> did, did that kind of <laughs> stuff. But I'm also glad that, you know, that that's behind me. And then once I got to college, like it, I really just saw like, Hey, like I don't, that's not who I have to be anymore. And that's not who, you know, I mean, anyone around me is like, you know, like there wasn't those people around all the time. It was a a very wide gamut. And then you could kind of fit in with the newer, newer kind of group. So, you know, I found myself, I was like, okay, I'm going to hang out at the library. Um, Like That was my (laughs) spot. Like, I was like, this is cool. Like, you know what, though, you're touching on something really important, though, where you were able to go to college and surround yourself with different people. You know, I remember I got accepted to go to the college that I wanted to go to. And at that point, my parents had already been divorced. I remember like my mother telling me that it just wasn't in the cards. Like financially, we're not going to be able to make, make, make this happen. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll get a job. And I got a job at a local, you know, auto shop at first, like cleaning cars, then doing oil changes and learning about, you know, being a mechanic. And that same attitude that was in those hardcore places and stuff like that, it carried over. There weren't a lot of deep conversations that I had with anybody under the hood of a car. And that's not to say that they're bad people or anything like that, but they, they were a lot of people who were in their 40s or in their 50s who knew that this was the career path they were going to take, that they were going to be making 16 bucks an hour for probably the rest of their life. And some of these guys I'm, I'm still friends with to this day, but there wasn't the room for expansion the way that, that you had with, with college. Because now you change one social group to probably the same social group, but fast forwarded 20 years. And then remembering that uh, this isn't where I want to be either. You know, So in the, in the blue collar world, a lot of that is still there. And I think depending on what group you're in and what trade you're in and what you do, you're going to be surrounded by people of different levels of intellect and, and you're going to find, you're going to find, <laughs> so you're going to find the good and bad in any group. But overall, that masculinity and that posturing, it still exists to a big degree. And so uh, I, I wasn't able to step away from that for quite a while, you know, where luckily, you know, you go into college and being able to find those groups gave you a, a big head start, I think, in that in that aspect. Here's, I saw this amazing report. Uh, I can't remember which channel it was on, but they talked about the son of David Duke. 
He was raised in a very militant, you know, white supremacist uh, himself. You know, his dad is famously a white supremacist and, and, and he was that way. And he had this incredible, incredible, like metamorphosis. And it was all because he went to college and he said over and over again, people who were different from him would just be like, oh, like, where, why do you think like that? And where did you come up with that idea? And little by little, it was like an onion peeling away this entire, basically brainwashing that he had gotten from his own upbringing. Uh, you know, he's now like really outspokenly against what the father represents, which I think is the ultimate and wonderful irony. Um, and, and it's a beautiful thing. And I, once again, I want to go and, uh, and, and study that person because that's the, that's the, 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 the educational moment. That's the thing we can learn from. How does something, how does someone get on a path that looks like it only leads one direction and it goes somewhere else? What, how does it happen? So college is, you guys have really made a great case for that. Um, but I also think, you know, we hear a lot about the internet uh, and social media being the dangerous side. You know, you find like-minded people and, you know, you could find hate, other haters and you can gravitate towards certain behavior, et cetera. But there's also the opposite for can imagine lots of uh, kids maybe who don't have the luxury of going to college maybe they they can't get out of state they can't they, they're not uh, uh, traveling it is an opportunity for people to find and look and see that life is a little bit uh, different you know there's i absolutely love when i get uh, uh, dms on instagram from kids from small towns or like either still have a dream of coming to new york because they just want to feel what it's like to be in a place that doesn't, everyone doesn't look the same and act the same. Um, I, I, you know, that's really uh, exciting to me to, uh, to hear. I guess my, my um, question for you then is you, I don't know, your response to the, the podcast was so in, instructive to me. You, you were just so calm about sort of just saying, like, why were we told that guys, regular guys, blue collar guys, why were we just told that we were not supposed to talk about anything important, so anything personal? What, you know, it, it's so silly. It, I mean, it would take like weeks to figure out where it all comes from. I guess my question to you is, what are some of the, what are some of the pointers you can give to other guys about, about breaking through that, that little bit of that wall? I used the phrase before, I probably won't be able to find it, but it was, it was something about a wall that was up there that, that, uh, you couldn't get around back then. Well, it's. It, I think that it would be a mistake to say, okay, go out and be um, as vulnerable as you want to be with everybody you meet, because I don't think that, especially in some circles, that that is going to yield very good results. But if you're in an environment like a, uh, you know, cer certain trades and certain um, certain aspects of construction and and other you know other places, I'm sure, have more of a uh, I want to say like a um, Marine Corps type mentality, you know, group mentality, gang mentality uh, than others. So if you can find somebody who maybe has a little bit more depth to them, you know, so in that group, guaranteed, there's a few people who are putting up the facade, but don't exactly believe it, or they're just doing what they have to do to get through, right? And that's understandable. Find that person and try to spend some time with them and just see if you can create a deeper connection because oftentimes it would be surprising how 
somebody who I didn't think there was really much to, all of a sudden I'm stuck and I have to work in a room with them. We're wiring out a branch circuit or whatever, or you're in a switchgear room where you spend weeks at a time in a tiny little cement room running pipe or whatever. Um, you get to have these conversations. And there are times where you go, man, this guy is actually like, like, what do you, when you peel back the BS, there's a good guy underneath. And that happened quite a bit. And so, you know, one of the good things about running a tow truck was I was given these 10 minute portions of time with people I'd never met and try to get them. I would try to take them from being in a terrible mood to leaving and feeling in a good mood. So it was almost like the best like exercise that you could possibly have where I would pick somebody up. They had either just gotten in an accident or got pulled over for, you know, having an unregistered vehicle. I'm going to take those people. They're in my cab with me. Nowadays, you can't do this because of, you know, all kinds of lawsuits and stuff, but I would give them a ride back to their house or whatever. I would try to take them from being mad at whatever to turning that around. And so I, I was able to practice this multiple times every day and night because I was running a tow truck at night and working during the day. And it, it taught me a lot about how to sort of get past the, the initial, you know, I'm mad at this kind of thing. So people are mad at the cops. They're mad at the other person who just hit them or whatever. How do you get past that? And so sometimes you can put yourself on the same side and say, yeah, this is our common enemy. You know, oh, yeah, damn those cops. You know, they, they got my buddy the other day, you know, whatever. Now they see that you're on their side. Now you can start working away and, 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 a few times it didn't work, but over time I got pretty good at being able to to do that with people, you know, to get on their good side and to have them leave feeling pretty good, you know, like, ah, you know what, the car, listen, the important thing to remember is that the, it's just a car, you're all right, that it can be fixed, you didn't like that car anyway, you know, stuff like that. And it was really able to work out pretty well. So using that same technique with people who are in that uh, that field with you trying to make sure that you have a common enemy that you know if it's the boss the job the stupid piece of pipe that won't cut the tool that's not working whatever it is being able to be on that side together and then work away those little layers of the onion until eventually you can see if there's a person there that you want to know or not that has been instrumental in creating a deeper connection with people well i'd rather watch the tow truck king a reality show than the Tiger King reality. That really would have been a great show. Like, okay, who do we got in the truck this week? <laughs> it would have been a good one, Carl. I mean, I love, I love how you were working through and just like being just very, very methodically understanding how this was, uh, you know, an opportunity for you. You really used that opportunity in that job to really get a lot more out of that job than just hauling a car or whatever else your duty was for the day. So that's, that's a pretty cool thing, mm. Adam. You look like you want to jump. Yeah, um, I, I just, I mean, I just kind of had like a, an epiphany there because um, I was uh, coming back from Ozfest the first time. Like my parents let me and a couple friends go to you know the show. You know, it was like a little bit outside the city. It was like an hour and change drive, and you know, we were all leaving the show, and um, we we got hit by a drunk driver. Um, luckily, none of us were hurt at all, but they hit me right like in the back. Um, passenger side rear quarter panel. We flew against the uh, the midway, spun out 360, and you know when the tow truck driver came and got to us, he like was super chill and was like relaxed and like this was back when you could go in the cab and stuff. And he's like, "Hey guys, I'm going to take you to, you know, I'll take you to this McDonald's off of the next thing. Your parents will be able to come and pick you up, and you know we'll be able to, you know, we'll we'll be able to get past this. You know, it, it's just a car." 
you know, all that. And, you know, I was crying. I was so scared for my friends just because like I was the driver. Like the first thing I did, I was like, <gasps> my friend uh, Jeb was sitting in there and I was just like there and I was just, and like they were on the other side and then the cars were coming at me. And I was just like, I just hope that it's me and not my friends, you know, if it, if it comes down to it. Luckily, nothing happened. The car was totaled. Everyone was fine. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> but at the end of, at the end of the day, you know, um, just like you said, like you really had those, had those common ground. And one thing that I've noticed when it comes to really getting down deep with people is talking about the intangible. Like he, um, you know, leveled with me on the idea of safety, on the idea of trust, on the idea of family and the idea of impermanence. And with all those things, they're not tangible things. Like a car is a tangible thing. It's like, okay, that's done and over with, but this is what you still have. And this is what you can still, you know, talk about and get to know. So my question to you is, you know, whenever you're really deciding about someone to, to get to know, do you feel that talking about the non-tangible things, you know, even if, you know, you're working with, you know, you're saying like pipe and sauce and stuff like that, does that help you like really get down to knowing someone is talking about what isn't actually tangible? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good way to put it because you have to, you have to go into those waters gradually. You can't jump right in. So you can't be like, so what do you think the nature of reality is? So <laughs> yeah, many people totally. are going to be like, what, what, <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, when's lunch break? I got to get away from this guy. Uh, <laughs> so you have to be careful with that because you, you, you don't exactly know. So, so working your way into that, little by little. So you could start with an idea or a concept or, or, or whatever it is, you, you find something that they're into. And then you can, you can talk about that maybe in a more abstract way. And then trying to find, go a little bit deeper and deeper. Now, I mean, it sounds like, I sound like a sociopath with like techniques and stuff like that, but I've learned that this is just kind of naturally what happens. It's not like I'm like, okay, and now I did this check. This is how we're going to find out more check, you know, whatever you feel them out, you know, you see how they are, you see what their sense of humor is, you play to that. Because one of the great things is, we're all chameleons. So like when Albert goes back to see his buddies, he, he turns up the, you know, <laughs> the Italian a little bit, you know, when I go out and I'm hanging out with the, the blue collar folk, you have to acclimate to that. So knowing that that's the way we are, and that's not exactly disingenuous, that's just, that's just survival of the fittest, it's the way we've learned to adapt. So you, you learn more about that person. So you know what you're going into when you're going to spend some time in there. Right now, I'm, I'm doing a job with a guy who, um, he's, a, he's a brilliant electrician. And he's forgotten more than I'll ever know about railroads and electricity and high voltage. But he's very, very difficult to work with. He's, a, he's like getting into an office with a Brillo pad. This is his first job where he's actually been in an office. So I sit literally six feet from this guy. Not anymore because of the social distancing thing. Uh, but he's he he's notorious as somebody you know you, you bring up this guy's name and everybody kind of oh you're doing a job with him that kind of thing what i've learned to do with him though is the same thing you know and it's 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 something that i think is is when people look at somebody and they say they're charismatic or they're uh you know personable it's it's more of I'll bet you that person is more concentrated on the way you react to the things they say than the things that they are actually saying. So they're not, they're not listening to you with, a, with an intent to wait for you to stop making noise so they can speak again. 
they're listening to you and taking all those things into consideration so they can prepare for their next statement to bring that a little bit closer. Now, the good thing about that is that we all have choice, so we don't have to bring everybody close to us. You can choose that, you know what? That's about as far as I want to go with this person. We're going to keep it a working relationship. And we're just going to talk about the distance between that piece of switch gear to this piece of switch gear. And that's all we're going to talk about. I have no interest in hanging out with this person because of maybe they have a weird belief. You know, maybe they are, you know, super judgmental. Maybe they're just a, a bad person, which in my experience is actually pretty rare. Like people who are actually inherently bad. Most likely they've put up some walls that you just have to beat down and break down. And so this guy I've been working with over the last year, I've been able to bust through those walls with him where he'll confide in me in a lot of ways that he probably wouldn't talk to other people. And so it gives us a better working relationship together. And it also, it makes your day go by. You have to spend eight, 10, 12 hours a day with this person anyway. You might as well enjoy it. So if we can laugh about the same things, you know their brand of humor, you know their outlook on life, you know what to avoid, you can make it a lot more interesting. And guaranteed, he's not doing the same thing. That's why every season is so abrasive but he thinks I'm a great guy. You know what I mean? And, and so uh, he's mistaken in that regard, but still it's like, you know, we can get along, we can actually work together and we can have a good time. So I think that a lot of it is being aware of what's happening outside of you and adapting to those things. So when you could bounce something off of somebody and you can gauge their reaction and then adjust, do it again, do it again, do it again. You know, and of course it's not being, it sounds terrible. And I, I mean, it's being true to yourself. You are yourself and you're reacting the way you would. You're just editing out certain things that you may not want to bring up. This guy, I won't bring up politics with. We just don't see eye to eye, but that's okay. You know, and that's the way it is. But I think another great thing is that when you meet people like Albert, you, you, you meet somebody and you realize that you want to take something. They're doing something in a way that I want to emulate. I don't want to be friends with me because I already know all about me. I want to be friends with people who are a little bit different. And so Somebody like Albert, who the moment we, we, we met and we're, we're going around down in New York City, he had this, this addictive energy and this, this ability to, to speak in a way that you knew that you weren't being judged by him. You knew that he wasn't going to come back with some snarky comment or be like, yeah, whatever. I think that sometimes you meet people like that and you actually want to take something of their personality and adapt it to yours and come, you know, be like, man, maybe we should all be a little bit more like Albert, you know? So, oh boy, <laughs> no, Carl, really seriously, I'm getting, I'm getting seriously choked up because it was a big moment for me. I'm like, I'm hanging around with Carl and his wife and our buddy Tucker, and we're in New York City, and we met down at, you know, that men's uh, store. What was the name of the store where, where we met? All, the, oh, the, uh, we went, well, we met up at Huckberry. We went to uh, all uh, slightly Alabama. Yeah, so which, which was great. I didn't know Huckberry at all, but it, I was just absolutely not being prepared to go to a really adorable little cafe bistro kind of place for brunch with you and your wife and Tucker. I'm like in the, in the West village um, on a Saturday morning, it was an absolutely incredibly beautiful day. And the place was packed with hipsters and there's us in the corner. And, you know, you even treated us for lunch. And I was like, not only, I mean, I, my brain was just spinning from the whole experience and it was just it made me you know just from to, to flip it on its on its head um it made me feel um justified it made me feel appreciated to have someone react in such a positive way the way that you reacted 
and and so quickly and you were so warm and so welcoming and so kind so fast um you know mostly i i i know you know i go up to people i'm very i kind of have a fearless side of me when it comes to people i'm I like the, the clock is ticking i'm gonna be dead soon so i'm gonna get to know people if they like it or not and every most of the time i can go up to people and they don't they're not put off by it every once in a while someone will go damn you're so freaking forward like that's so obnoxious and i'm like Hmm, maybe I should dial it down. And then of course I can't dial it down because that's just not who I am. But I mean, I think you, what you said before, you can't necessarily tell everybody everything right away. Politics right now is a fraught one for sure. I mean, I'm finally at the point now where in early on in a series of exchanges with somebody, uh, with a, you know, a dude is asking me about like a pair of engineer boots and they ask me about my wife because they see the ring in the pictures. I'm like, I'm married to a dude. Before it would be three, four months before I would say married to a dude. Now I'm just like, I am. And you know what? If they don't want to talk to me, you know, that's it. That's their loss. It's like if, if that little bit of information is going to freak them out, I can't control that. So that's been that's been one of the reasons why doing this podcast has been so great. I mean, I just, it's, it's just in, in, you know, sure. There are people who don't really appreciate what, who you are and what you're, what you're trying to do, but the ones that really do appreciate it, make you feel like a million bucks. So mm. anyway, it's my very long drawn out <laughs> way of saying, thank you for the kind words. That was, that was really incredible. Um, I did want to ask one more question. Um, you, you and I mentioned a little bit about right now with this fraught time with safety and security, talking about how men on, in, in blue collar jobs who are on the front lines and they're considered essential workers are having troubles dealing with the fear element, that there's a fear element that they're, they're finding hard to, to uh, confront. What, could, could you just talk about that a little bit and what, see if you have any advice for guys who might be feeling, uh, feeling that that's something they can't really talk about? Yeah, it's so I should probably introduce the the situation because it's a little unique and nobody's been in this one before. But this is what you end up finding. And I don't I don't want to be too specific because I don't want to speak about any particular project. But the the company that I work for now uh, is is one of the biggest in the Northeast. We do a lot of massive projects, and right now we're working on one of those very very big projects. Then it's one of the ones that I'm involved in. It's a large building. Uh, where we have several, we have about over a hundred electricians in there alone. Uh, there is probably a total of five, six hundred workers inside this building. So what's happening is nobody is really communicating with the the guys who are on the front lines, the guys who are actually working. They're in this building with which doesn't have a working ventilation system in it. There's of course, you know, everything is always a rush, rush, rush. You know, it's got to be done on time, under budget, the whole thing. So. They're working, but everybody's looking at each other going, I heard everywhere that we aren't supposed to be within six feet or uh, are, should we be wearing masks? Isn't anybody going to say anything? Everybody they know has been working from home for weeks now. And it's like nobody's even communicates them. What the heck's going on? So there's this sense of, all right, well, we're working now. We uh, are in what they, they've deemed <laughs> or dubbed the uh, the incubator because like I said, no ventilation. Everybody's in the same the same proximity, very very close. Nobody wants to cry uncle and say, "I don't want to be here anymore." This is really making me nervous. I see these the death toll is rising, the infection rate is growing exponentially. I don't want to be here anymore because 
you know, I need to provide for my family, but what good is it if I go home and bring this, this crazy virus with me? They don't want to be the ones to say that because it's this, I've got to be tough kind of thing. So everybody, nobody wants to say, all right, enough. I, I'm, I can't deal with this anymore and, and leave because they're scared. Nobody wants to do that. There's also the side of it, which is, I'm not sure I'm going to get called back to this job. Now we're a union contractor. So guys come from the hall and they don't want to get skipped over the next time there's a job or when the call finally comes in for everybody to go back to work. They don't want to be forgotten or just say, you know, hey, look, this guy bailed on us. We're not going to bring him back. So they're worried about coming back or even having a job when it's all over. So it's multifaceted. There's the social side. They don't want to be seen as a wimp by their peers, yet they still want to bring home money and provide for their family, yet they don't want to put them in danger but they also don't want to hurt their future prospects for a job. So everybody is feeling all of these conflicting emotions at once. And there are some people who are just going, nope, none of it's actually real. Uh, we're just going to keep working. You know, there's that group. And then there's, there are the people who have left. But that's a, uh, those are the outliers for sure. Most people are looking at each other going, what are we going to do? Will somebody tell me what to do? Because if you give me a directive, I'll do it. I'll go home and then we can come back if we're all on the same page. But you need to tell me that we're going home. I can't make that choice because it, it makes me look like a wimp. So it's a very, very weird time for a lot of people out there. And they don't know if they're being overly cavalier and actually, you know, harming somebody. Is it, is it being adventurous and, and to the point of being reckless? Nobody knows. And everybody's really uh, torn about it. These jobs are still, they're still going on. Oh, yeah, I can second that quite a bit. My brother is a welder and he's still out there on the front lines welding. And, um, you know, luckily in the last week, his job was like, okay, this is enough. So he, he got the call, but for the last three weeks, you know, he's been calling home, his girlfriend works in the hospital. So she's still working, he's working. And they're just like, what is going on? And that was our conversations for a while is just what the heck is going on? Um, and for me on the flip side with, you know, working for Apple is like, you know, they're, they're keeping us informed and, you know, they're, they're checking in on us. So like, I just feel like, ah, you know, that stress is relieved, but I can totally imagine for the workers on your team, as well as I know what my brother went through. And it's totally a thing of like, Hey, he's, you know, he's still an apprentice working to get into this great union where these people have worked their butts off to be in the position where they're getting called for work and they're, you know, on a great team and they don't want to risk that, you know, they put so much time and effort into being that in that union and in that position that, you know, anything that is not like, you know, about that and for that union is, is so detrimental to their career. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's really mentally straining um, just about that. And I know, over the last uh, you know week or so, like I've had some really rough anxiety days of just you know, hey, like what's going on? Because it's creeping into like the degrees of separation in my life where it's like, okay, well, you know, so and so and his friend and blah blah blah. But now it's like, hey, a friend of a friend just died. You know, I know a couple people personally affected by this, so it's just like slowly coming in and just the anxiety, the fear, the frustration of not knowing. I know for me, that's one of the big things. If I don't know what's going on, I'm just like, hey, like that's that's upsetting to me. Like that's kind of like, that gets me going. So yeah, that's a really tough mental block to have. And then 
if you're in a position where you can't talk about your feelings, like where does that bubble up to? And then where does that get released? Because if it's not with your peers and your work group, you know, does it, do you get to talk about with their, your family in a positive way? Can they support it? Cause do they even know what you're going through? So it's gotta be super tough to, to be one of those guys on the job. Cause like you said, that, you know, mentality is, you know, don't be a wimp, suck it up, do your work, get paid, go home, you know, show up for the next job. So, you know, again, my heart goes out to them because they're in a tough spot. You know, they're, they're fighting mentally and physically every day. So I, I don't even know what to say to these guys other than just, you know, hang in there because what, what else is there to do? I mean, it's a, it's a really tough situation. Yeah, it is. And we had somebody come uh, from a local newspaper to interview the people as they were leaving, you know, the, the job, there's a mass exodus at like three 30. So everybody's going out to their cars and there was an inter, uh, 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 you know, some, some reporter there and they went over and, and it was, it was print news. So there was no like camera or anything like that, but they did interview a few people and not one of them wanted their name to be used. So they were like, yeah, you know, and I, I think I actually posted some of it on my Instagram because it was a, a fascinating article, but it pretty much echoed what I was saying. And, uh, none of them wanted their name to be used because again, they don't want to be seen as the person who was calling you know, attention to these issues. And it's, and like, you know, you brought up another uh, element of this, which is they don't, they can't talk to other people. Now I'm sure some of them do, you know, say, Hey, so what are we doing here? This thing's kind of getting crazy, but most of them have that keep your head down, keep working kind of mentality. And if we had looked back and this was the, uh, the black plague or, or something that was crazy, you know, we didn't realize, we don't realize now, if you look back on that and you go, well, if that was the case, I would have just, you know, hold up my house for a few weeks and, and gotten through it. We don't realize that they probably had the same thing where nobody knew how crazy it was going to get. And I, I would rather be overprepared and, and err on the side of caution, especially when you have your family and stuff like that to consider, than being on the opposite side of that, which is too little too late. You know, and so, like you said, it's, it's creeping in and now it's affecting people. You know, it used to be, oh, they, got, they found a case in Rhode Island. No, they found a case in your state. Now there's a case in your town. Now there's five cases in your town. Now it's somebody you actually know. Well, when's this going to stop? And when my work, my wife works for an insurance company. And uh, so for them, it had weeks prior, they said, all right, well, we're going to get everybody set up with a laptop or a way that they can work from home. You guys are all going to work from home until, you know, further notice. Now you can't do that in construction. I understand it's a physical thing. But the level of, of communication that they had made me realize how little we were getting. And my company in particular was pretty good with us because they did tell us, you know, kind of what their plan was, what they were thinking of doing. Um, but then again, that was at, at my level. And a lot of people who were actually, you know, working with the tools were, were kind of looking at each other going, what are we going to do? So it was, it's, it's a very tough thing. And, and again, these people are still out there, still doing the work and figuring I guess they're just going to keep going, but it makes you feel like you're expendable. Like, okay, well, uh, we don't have the, the um, prestige of saying that we work in healthcare, you know, so we're helping things. We're building a building or a bridge or, or anything that will get done. It'll get done and we can put it on hold and it'll finish up. When we're all done when this thing's cleared out. We don't need to be here right now, yet we we're required to be. So it's, it's, a, it's a very it's a strange place to be. Well, I, I guess, uh, you know, pe the people that you come across in your job are going to be lucky if they take a moment to talk to you, they'll probably find someone who's going to give them 
some good advice for managing the the stresses that they're feeling right now and these competing forces that they're they're coming up against. You're so, you know you're a very level headed guy and you you come across as very just having a very calm, reassuring sense of authority about you. And, you know, it, if that, it, it may require, it's probably going to require you to be uh, a leader probably in ways that you did not even expect. Uh, I think this, this crisis is going to be a real test of leadership. You know, I'm, I'm, I see it in my clients that I represent. I see it even in myself. I, I'm, I run my own company. I just, I'm trying really hard to be smart, safe, uh, protect my employees and manage a lot of uh, stress about finances. And, you know, there are just times where I feel like I'm completely incapable of, of uh, managing all these competing things. And, you know, you just have to constantly come back to down to earth and just say, Hey, what part of this equation can I control? And th this is where we have to get back one over and over again with what we're doing just today, uh, talking to each other, just knowing, just knowing in a pinch, if you're freaking out, you, I'm going to call one of you dudes. That's going to help me. I just know it. I mean, I mean, sometimes I was feeling, I, I mentioned it in my, in my Instagram post today, I was starting to have an anxiety attack and I, I don't really get that too often in public, but I was just seeing, feeling sad at the market, seeing everybody's walking around there. You know, you could, you know, see their, uh, their, their eyes above their mask. There was a lot of a lot of anxiety in people's faces, although you can't see people's mouths. It's really hard to gauge. You can't see someone smile behind a mask. Um, and I was just starting to feel sad about that because I love, you know, it's my Saturday. I'm going out. I'm seeing my, uh, going to my normal places. And I was just starting to feel sad. And then I'm like looking down the aisles, like there's no soup. There's no toilet paper. I'm starting to, my, my, I could feel my heart start to, to palpitate a bit and thinking like, when is this going to end? And how much of this can we really deal with? And I, I literally looked at my phone and I saw a couple of texts from friends like, just checking in. How you doing? And I got to the car and one of my Instagram buddies was DMing me saying, Hey, you there? I'll turn on the video camera and say hi. And it completely got my head out of, you know, it's kind of like you're in a room, it's a dark room. And if you're turned the wrong way, you don't realize that the door is behind you. And I think that's really what connections with others does for you. It makes, it makes you realize that you are not alone and lost, that there's always, there's always the chance of other people helping you see where the light see or the exit is or see where the better place is or see the better way of thinking or see how to tackle something in, in, um, in, in a less anxious way. So look, we know it's going to be a hard uh, uh, road ahead and maybe, maybe, maybe one of our future uh, shows should be a little bit about maybe invite some people to come on and talk about some of the p particular things that they're dealing with in this crisis. But if I do want to end on a, on a positive note, um, uh, just Carl, you're, you're just such a motivating guy. I'm like, first of all, you're like made for radio voice. I mean, you're like, so in the zone with that voice of yours, uh, what are some of the, just tell us a little bit, couple of the goals, some of the things uh, that you, that you're doing for yourself that are helping you stay focused and say, stay pumped up about about your future uh it, well i'll tell you there's it, one of the big things that that helps me get through the day here is is looking forward to doing some exercising so i try to make sure that i get in my little home gym every day because just that movement and feeling that way it really sets me on the right path to get going you know so i, I still wake up doing construction hours so i'm usually up by about four 
and uh, you know, with, with the kids and everything like that, things have changed quite a bit, but um, it's given me an opportunity to eliminate the very long commute time that I usually have and basically steal a few hours every single day in order to focus a little bit more on like the YouTube stuff and, and coming up with some good ideas for video. But, you know, before I forget about it, I want to speak to something that you brought up, which is one of the things that helps me go get through something like this situation that we're in now and almost any situation that that I've ever found myself in is realizing that we are we're shaky in the way that we are as individuals. But we have to remember is that your stock, the, the, the people who got you here went through crazy stuff all the way from having to worry about being eaten that day to, you know, uh, everything that brought us up to this point. So my grandfather, he, uh, when he was in Poland, his, his whole family got brought to a uh, concentration camp and he never saw his parents or his, his siblings ever again. Then he moved to Belgium, came here. Uh, he was married. They had three boys. He worked uh, during the day in a machine shop at night as a janitor so she could stay home and raise the kids. That's a guy who can complain if he wanted to. He's still alive. He's like 96. That's a guy who, who knows hardship. So for us to go through this now, we've got to remember that we are made of much tougher stuff than we give ourselves credit for. We can get through this and, and lots, lots more. You know, it's like, they've proven that the idea of pain to people, like if you're going to torture somebody, the idea of pain is actually more effective than the pain itself because people have a much higher tolerance for pain, a much higher pain threshold than they actually realize. So you can go through this and lots more, multiple times more than, than uh, and you don't, nobody gives themselves the credit for it, I think. Everybody has that ability to get through it. We can get through it. And, you know, when we were working on the railroad last year, I was working uh, down in New York uh, on the railroad and we were doing night shift because that's when you have to run trains, you know, it's during the day. So at night we get to do the work and we were going out there in January and it was going to be negative whatever for the next 10 hours on the side of a, of a railroad track with no way to get out of it. There was a saying that we all had, which was you can go through hell as long as you know you're coming out in the morning. And everybody would say that, you know, listen, we can go through hell as long as we know we're coming out in the morning. That's, I think, the big problem here is that we don't know when it's going to end. We could go through this hell and we could easily, handily take care of it. It's the not knowing when it's going to end. That's really, I think, the most difficult thing for everybody. Totally, man. I, I feel you on that. We've gone through so, so much. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've learned on this podcast is, you know, Albert was talking before about, you know, more opening up and, you know, being more inviting to, to new people and just whatever. And for me, um, you know, instead of politics, it's, uh, you know, religion and, you know, speaking with Anthony and speaking with Christian um, about that. And for uh, the Jewish people and the Jewish faith, um, it was Passover, Pesach um, last Wednesday. And that's really our kind of time to reflect and say, hey, like, it was really tough for us a little while ago. And then we spent 40 years in the desert kind of wandering around. So it's like, we, uh, you know, let's, let's take this with a grain of salt. You know, um, there's, there are some rougher, rougher times. Um, and that's kind of one of my favorite parts about Judaism is just kind of remembering the suffering and, you know, remembering how good we have it. Um, one of my favorite holidays is called Sukkot. And it's where you kind of build like a little sukkah outside your house and you live in there for a week and you like 
really just kind of like cram yourself into this tiny little place and just be like, hey, let's remember how hard it used to be without running water, electricity, and, you know, the modern accommodations. And, you know, that's one part where when we were, you know, walking through the desert, we didn't know when that was going to end. We were just kind of like, oh, yeah, we're trying to find this, you know, quote unquote promised land. When's, when's this happening? And, you know, people rebelled and people freaked out and just things happened. So, and, and that is definitely scary to your point is like, Hey, when, when's this going to end? You know, everyone's kind of shifty eyed, just looking at each other. But like you said, we're going to be able to get through this. We've seen way tougher times. We used to get eaten by animals. You know, we don't have to worry about that right now. What we have to do is worry about keeping ourselves safe, social distancing and staying inside and washing our hands. So the, you know, kind of the, the only fear is the fear itself, but we really need to kind of stay mindful and also, I mean, at the root of this right here is talk about it and just get support from your friends and family and people that want to lend an ear to you or, you know, a shoulder to cry on. Just say like, hey, I'm freaking out right now. And, you know, just saying like, that's okay. Like, we, like I have been too. So I understand what you're going through. And let's get through this next part together. I'm here to listen. Tell me how you feel. So to your point, I just want to say thank you. Um, for just saying that we've been through tough times and it's, it's easy to know, you know, when you can get out of hell, when you can, you know, see, see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we're deep in this tunnel right now. And things that can help us out are communication and empathy. So I really thank you for, for all of that. And just want to, you know, really just drive that point home that talking about it and just being able to listen to other people is what we can do right now to really, really help out. So thank Mm. you, Carl. Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, your your story was incredible, and it just—I will say—I—I'm um, going to skip on the torture part. I think my thinking about torture is far as I need to go to experience that one. Um, I also feel really good that I've got your phone number in my in my phone here uh, and can text you in, in an emergency, Carl. You just—you uh, gave us some uh, that that uh, those closing that story you told was really was really amazing, and it. We just got to keep telling us, telling each other those stories. And anyway, we will we'll definitely have you on the show again down the road to hear more about your adventures and your, uh, I guess we're, we're a little over an hour, a little longer than normal. I just want to thank both of you at a time when uh, we are uh, under a lot of pressure that you both made time on a Saturday morning. Uh, you have family and, and, ish, and, and other stuff going on. You made time to talk to each other. So that to me is like, oh, just, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, Adam, maybe you want to, anything else you want to just wrap it up? And Carl, we're going to, after we say so long, we're going to ask you to say so long as well. So just get ready for your cue. Okay. Yeah. I will. I think these have gone on a little bit longer because I think we need to, to talk more. And I think we've got a lot more on our minds. So um, yeah, again, uh, Carl, Albert, thank you so much. This has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Carl Murawski. Thank you for listening.